Thanks so much for choosing our podcast. Before you start this episode, this is Kellen Erskine from the future. If you're listening to the book pile for the first time, I highly recommend starting on a later episode after we hit our stride. Some of my all-time favorites are when we cover the books The Hunger Games, 1984, and The Roasts of the Da Vinci Code, or any of the Twilight Roasts. If you're here because you already like the podcast and want to binge from the beginning, then thanks again. New episodes every Monday. Hey everyone, what if you could get better at any skill no matter how rare? For example, only a handful of people have mastered the skill of rating our podcast. Today's book is Peak by <laughs> Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole. And I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and when I was a teenager, I used to practice the skill of throwing silverware in the air so it would flip around. And one time, I missed catching a steak knife and it stabbed the linoleum an inch from my toes. <laughs> And I'm David Vance. As a kid, I didn't play with silverware because we had money. <laughs> Anders Ericsson is maybe the world's best researcher on how we get good at things. If you want to be better at practicing, this book is for you. Robert Poole is less famous, so we're just going to ignore him. And this is the book pile. Sid Sparks, one word, Sid Sparks says, It's like being part of a book club, but with people you'd actually want to talk to. <laughs> She says, I love getting to hear about these different nonfiction works with enough detail to learn something and enough left out to allow me to read the books myself. Most importantly, the hosts are hilarious. And it is most important. It is funny, though, that she put hosts plural. <laughs> What's the implication there, Kellen? All right. And without further ado, here are five lessons that we took from Peak. Lesson one. To get better at a skill, improve your mental representations. So I want to start with a little activity. Kellen, I'm going to... Horseshoes? What's that? Horseshoes. <laughs> it's a callback to another episode. That's why you have to right. listen to all of these chronologically, because I had a hilarious say... horseshoes bit. <laughs> Kellen, I'm going to say a string of 16 words, and I want you to then repeat back to me as many as you can remember. You ready? Ready. Because with play, you very heart word, I man in games, I'm my a these sad. Wow. Um, heart, man, games, I, and sad. That was the one that stuck out to me the most. All right. You got five of the 16. Now I'm going to say the words back to you in a different order. I play these word games with you because in my heart, I'm a very sad man. <laughs> I play these word games with you because in my heart, I'm a very sad man. Uh, you got 16 of the 16. <laughs> also, if you ever need to talk. You set me up. <laughs> so what, what you just did there is called chunking. Ugh. The basic idea is that it's easier to remember things when they mean something to you. So the first time I read that line, it was just 16 random words. The second time, it was just one idea that contained 16 words. It was this chunk of information rather than 16 random pieces of information. So experts are people who have these chunks of memory that make it way easier for them to remember and understand a lot about whatever their field is. Chunking is definitely on my top five list of worst verbs. <laughs> what, what else makes the cut? Sloughing. I don't even want to say. Sloughing sounds like something that would happen in the Hundred Acre Wood, like with the Heffaluffs and Woozles. Uh, uh, the Woozles are sloughing. That sounds like a They Might Be Giants song. <laughs> I want to write Winnie the Pooh fanfic where you get like a Heffalump poacher. 
who just comes in and totally like decimates the population because he doesn't understand the word elephant. (laughs) I remember watching Dumbo as a kid and then watching it once as an adult and then thinking during that pink elephant scene, like, hold on. Alcohol doesn't make you hallucinate. Like, what else was in that? <laughs> we didn't see the part where the the crows spiked the ale with acid. <laughs> anyway, starting with that word game, I want to show another example within the chess world. So there was this chess player named Alexander Alekhine, and he was this excellent chess player. At one point, he was world champion. Also, the book just does not mention that he was also a Nazi collaborator. And I feel like that'd be like if a marketing book was like, you know who was persuasive was this guy, Goebbels. Anyway, <laughs> so during World War One, not two, he like the, was wait, a prisoner of... Like the marketing book we talked about in our last episode that used Jared from Subway as a good example. <laughs> Fair. Anyway, so Alexander Alekhine, during World War I, he was this prisoner of war and he had nothing to entertain himself except playing chess in his head. And he started getting really good at mental chess to the point where later in life he set a record. He played 32 blindfolded chess matches at the same time. But what's interesting to me is that it's basically the equivalent of that word game. Like we look at a chessboard and for us, it's like seeing a bunch of random words. He looks at a chessboard and he sees a sentence. And so because a chessboard means more to him, it's easier for him to hold it in his memory. You said he fought in World War One. Like, how many times do you think during battle that he shot his gun and then whispered to himself, checkmate, <laughs> and then just, like, moved diagonally? <laughs> okay, lesson two. You can teach kids perfect pitch. So it's an example of a broader lesson, which is almost any skill is learnable with the right practice. So he starts with this fascinating story about Mozart. When Mozart was seven, everyone was amazed that he had perfect pitch. You know, you could play or sing any note and he knew what it was. Everyone thinks it's this amazing natural gift. They probably all ignored seven-year-old Salieri. But then over time, people realized perfect pitch, it's not actually a natural gift. It's this learned talent. So first they- I hope people realized that and then made it very clear to Mozart (laughs) that he was not special. My understanding of Mozart is that he did not want for self-confidence, but maybe that's just from Amadeus. (laughs) I love how you can watch a movie made in the 80s about a man who lived hundreds of years ago and be like, oh yeah, I get him. Anyway, that's the first thing they notice. If you take music lessons as a young kid, you're more likely to develop perfect pitch. The second thing they notice is that if you grow up speaking a tonal language, you're more likely to learn perfect pitch. So for instance, in Mandarin, the meaning of the word changes based on if the pitch goes up or down. So if you grew up speaking Mandarin, you're slightly more likely to learn perfect pitch. So in 2014, this study comes out. There's this Japanese psychologist named Ayako Sakakibara who takes 24 kids between the ages of two and six, and he trains them for a year and a half to recognize what different notes sound like. Bear in mind, it's something like one in 10,000 people on the earth have perfect pitch. But at the end of the study, all 24 kids in the study come out with perfect pitch. And the takeaway here for me is not only is perfect pitch learnable, although in this case it's within the parameters of you kind of have to learn it before you're like six, it sounds like. Not only is perfect pitch learnable, the broader lesson for me is almost any skill you're interested in learning is probably learnable at least in some way, even ones that you may not think ahead of time. All right, lesson three, practice deliberately. 
So Benjamin Syphilis Franklin was a big chess player. <laughs> he would play like chess through the night. They tell his story, his story in the book that apparently he, he was frustrated because he never became great at chess, even though he would play for hours. They talk about this principle of intensely focusing on weaknesses to deliberately change them rather than, or a lot of people who, who play the guitar will start by learning intensely and practicing for that first year. And then for the rest of their life, they can only play those songs. Uh, except for you, because you bought a guitar several years ago and still haven't started. But for people who have fulfilled goals... <laughs> Sorry, what Kellen's talent clearly is throwing people under the bus. So, for example, every comedian that you've seen, like on Netflix, every successful comic started doing comedy in the worst conditions open mics, right? Like in comedy, you have to learn on the job, which I think forces deliberate practice. It forces you to write stronger material to get the attention of people who often didn't even know a show was about to happen. Like there's, <laughs> I started comedy in San Jose and San Francisco going to open mics, basement pubs. There was even a laundromat called The Brainwash where they had <laughs> open mics. And it, it was these situations where they would impose a comedy show on <laughs> innocent people. The fact that stand-up comedy requires that you grab attention from people who don't love you explains who goes into it. <laughs> wow. Boy, are you reading me. <laughs> One of the worst ones that I did, it was a coffee shop called Java on Ocean in San Francisco. And you go in, they call it a show up sign up. So you just sign this clipboard. You get there like 10 minutes early and they give you five minutes at some point in the night. There was no like PA system, but this guy just had what looked like a mini karaoke machine that he had picked up at a CVS on the way. You had to hold the little speaker in one hand and the microphone in the other and just sort of like point the speaker at the people who you thought would be listening. It was the worst. But I, I think there was value to this atmosphere of there's this constant focus because it's always uncomfortable. Like you're not allowed to become comfortable in this situation and plateau when every night is such a, an uphill struggle. You're always focused on if a joke bombed on getting their attention with it better the next time, like making everything stronger and trying again and again. And boy, was it rewarding when you could get someone from like UCSF who's just trying to finish their homework. <laughs> if you could get one of them to look up with their bloodshot eyes from their computer with just your jokes, you just two strangers. So one of the lessons here is that if you're not improving, it's not because you lack like natural talent, it's because you're not practicing the right way. So they say, don't try harder, try differently. One way you know that just getting in reps isn't enough to become an expert at things is that I choke on food a lot. And every time it happens, I'm like, I swear I've spent 10,000 hours doing this. How is this still <laughs> happening? <laughs> What's been your experience on the open mic circuit in... Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> so I admittedly haven't done a lot of open mics. I, I just did them to practice performance for a political show I was working on a couple of years ago. My experience was that when I bombed, it was kind of liberating to be like, oh, that's as bad as it gets. 
And then you just pivot from that and say, okay, this joke didn't work or that joke didn't work. I'm going to come back next time retooling them, or I'm just going to toss the whole bit. So like you made improvements on the voices you were doing for your puppets, that sort of thing? Yeah. The healthiest way to do it is just to take the feedback as information rather than a, you know, a personal attack. That's how I was able to cope with going through bombing through open mic after open mic is just mm. taking the, the failed jokes as information as I cried in the shower that night. <laughs> It's an information cry. <laughs> an information cry. <laughs> I'm just going to end with this. Um, deliberate, purposeful practice is lining up informed baby steps together to reach a longer-term goal, like, I don't know, learning the guitar, Dave. <laughs> Dave, you are so stupid. <laughs> 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 Dave has read over 700 nonfiction books. So that's where this is coming from. And that's why I know our, you're saying that as an exaggerated joke. But no, I, it wasn't exaggerated. I thought it was, it's less than 700. Oh, what a loser. <laughs> All right. Lesson four your brain literally grows in response to intense training. So Dave, you know how all British people are smart because they know how to drive on the wrong side of the road? Well, <laughs> I discovered a second reason why. Because they conquered the world? Okay, a third reason. They convinced they us you 2 was good? Don't include me in that. <laughs> they call it the hardest test in the world, which is the test London cabbies have to take. If you think that playing 32 games of chess blindfolded simultaneously is difficult, just try <laughs> getting to Big Ben from 221B Baker Street. I just realized I have no location references prepped for this in bullet London. point. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently London at the time when it was developing, it was the fastest growing metropolis in the world. It was the first metropolis in the world. And so there was no overall grand city planning. Like they weren't planning on the fact that at one point it would literally grow by 10,000 people a day. It wasn't a pre-planned grid system like you see in, you know, Salt Lake, Manhattan, Phoenix. I also think it's funny that London and Chicago, the two cities that literally burned down and were rebuilt, we didn't name either of them Phoenix. We used Phoenix for the city that's still in ashes. <laughs> San Francisco burned down too. And they were like, now, you know what? Let's rebuild the houses even closer together. <laughs> So first of all, I have to say, I think it's cool that London, that they have a standard in the first place for their taxi drivers, because in U.S., yeah. the standard seems to be, have you been to jail under five times? Right. But it's crazy because in the book, they, they recommend that when you go to London, don't rent a car, don't use GPS. That's how confusing the streets are. For this test, now, you need to know everything. the book was sponsored by the Cabbie Union of London. <laughs> Doesn't the word cabbie sound like a name that you would give to cabbage if you really loved cabbage? To drive a taxi in London, you need to know everything within a six-mile radius of Charing Cross. It's 25,000 streets. And now it makes more sense that you bring up that it was the cabbie union that wrote this book. Because there's probably actually only like 45 streets in London. But they're like, put in 25,000. That'll make <laughs> us sound real smart. So in the in, in the book they talk about the study that they did between two groups of cab drivers, uh, or cabbage lovers, as Dave calls them. <laughs> no, it's um, the word you give to cabbage if you love cabbage. I was trying to mock you, and it just that is a good way. 
to be bulletproof <laughs> is to just not understand when you're being insulted. <laughs> so they did this study with two groups of cab drivers, the new cab drivers and then cab drivers that had been doing it for several years. And the part of the brain in charge of memories, the hippocampus was physically larger. It had physically expanded in the older, more experienced cab drivers. Going back to this idea of intense training, of focused improvement, where as you're driving in London through the years, you have to be able to find better ways, better routes. Construction will pop up in one area for six months. You have to be constantly aware of these changes and making improvements in this mental map. All right, lesson five. This is a quick one. Go outside your comfort zone. So there's this diagram I saw once. Imagine a bullseye. Inner circle says comfort zone. The next circle says growth zone. And then the third circle says overwhelm zone. And the basic idea is that your growth happens right there in the middle when you're just outside of your comfort zone, but you're not so far out that you're overwhelmed by what you're trying to do. And he talks a decent amount in the book about making sure that you're outside of that comfort zone and pushing yourself just a little harder than you're used to being pushed so that you have the opportunity to keep growing. Are you That's done? I got there. <laughs> all right. So just to recap our favorite lessons from peak. Number one, to get better at a skill, improve your mental representations. Number two, you can teach kids perfect pitch. Number three, practice deliberately. Number four, your brain literally grows in response to intense training. And number five, go outside your comfort zone. And number six, anyone can play as good as Michael Jordan. <laughs> I think that's what we were you trying should... to get across. Mm -hmm.